In terms of the future of work, I mean, I am somebody who thinks that the automation of work is possible and in many cases desirable. But I think I need to be a little bit careful in terms of how I frame that or present that thesis, because I don't think that the future will be one in which nobody works. I, you know, I think there will be some people who work or are paid for a living in the future. I just think that an increasing percentage of the adult population won't be able to find gainful employment because of advances in automation. Now, it's already the case that we have a fairly significant percentage of the adult population that don't work and don't look for work. You know, there's a, a metric that's used in many advanced countries, something called the labor force participation rate, which is a measure of the adult working population, people who are at work or looking for work relative to the total adult population. And that figure is around 60 to 70 percent in most advanced industrial economies. So you're, you're talking about between 30 and 40 percent of adults don't work at the moment. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I'm constantly working at coffee shops, Starbucks, constantly on the go. That's how I do my best work. I can't stand being at home. And another thing I can't stand, not having enough screen space. That's why I'm super pumped to tell you guys about a game changer when it comes to working on the go. Sidetrack, a second dual mount monitor that hooks right onto your laptop so you can use it in Starbucks, in the car, anywhere. Pops on incredibly easy. Studies show you're 24% more productive when you have a second monitor, saving up to four hours a week. I know I don't have a ton of hours in the week, especially now being a dad, and having an extra screen, the ability to flip back and forth between them, incredibly powerful. If you've ever worked with two screens, you know just how valuable it can be. And that's why we're pumped to have the kings of multitasking sidetrack as sponsors for today's episode. If you travel, you're serious about work, serious about getting stuff done and being productive, which I know you all are, you guys should check out an awesome discount they have for our listeners. For a limited time, you can get 10% off by going to sidetrack.com. That's S-I-D-E-T-R-A-K. There's no C in there anywhere, guys. Sidetrack.com slash discount slash disruptors. Again, that's sidetrack, S-I-D-E-T-R-A-K dot com slash discount slash disruptors to save 10%, be more productive, and optimize the way you work. I spent all day today writing. I love coffee, but I hate jitters. I was at Starbucks, and I'm a little bit bouncing off the walls. That's why I'm pumped to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Four Sigmatic's Lion's Mane Blend. If you haven't tried Lion's Mane or the other awesome mushrooms that this Finnish company is putting out there, I definitely recommend it. Between the podcast, books, startup coaching, and life as a dad, I need to be switched on and creative in a big way. And Four Sigmatic's proprietary blend, it's got only 40 milligrams of caffeine, for creative, natural, drug-free productivity to power your day without the crash, side effects, or addiction. And you know what? The flavor, it's awesome. Listeners, if you go to disruptors.fm slash fs, you'll save 10% off anything from Four Sigmatic. They've got some incredible superfood blends. I recommend checking out their Four Mushroom blend as well. And you know what? You'll get free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Again, that's disruptors.fm slash fs. Use offer code DISRUPTORS to save 10% and to take it to the next level. Tim Ferriss recommends this to everybody. Jonathan Levy, one of the awesome guests we had, our Superhuman Academy all-star, he loves it as well. And it's powering elite performers like you everywhere. Are you going organic, keto, paleo, some type of diet for incredible performance? You want the healthiest foods delivered to your doorstep fast and easy? Well, you should check out today's show sponsor, Thrive Market, the best organic online grocery store in the States. They've got gluten-free lentils and breads, chemical-free cleaners, organic coconut milk, all at up to 50% off delivered to your door with a subscription to Thrive Market's awesome online health store. Listeners get a bonus 25% off their first order, up to 20 bucks when you use our link, disruptors.fm slash thrive. Check it out. They've got just about everything at rock bottom prices for, for best in class quality, regardless of how you're eating. And I know I switch it up. I'm sure you guys do as well. Disruptors.fm slash thrive for more details. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Here, the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. This ain't a scene, it's a goddamn AI arms race. That's what it feels like these days. 
and we're building up into incredibly, incredibly advanced worlds. The question, where it heads? The answer, we're talking about it today with John Danaher, an author, podcaster, and academic, and lecturer at the National University of Ireland, focused on ethical, social, and legal implications of emerging technologies and philosophical topics. His new book, Automation and Utopia, explores human flourishing in a world without work, cuts through some of the hype and pessimism about automation, and makes a case that we could be headed towards a techno-utopia. On his podcast, he also interviews incredible world leaders on society, ethics, and tech. So consider checking it out. In today's episode, we'll discuss how to think about purpose in a post-work world, why AI and automation will lead to utopia and human flourishing, John's thoughts about a robot tax, and how robotics will impact jobs in the economy, how we can change tech and social media for the better, why utopia is rarely top-down, and why we're headed for a virtual future. This one's fun. We get into the weeds. You guys will enjoy it. So without further ado, I give you John Danaher. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. John, philosopher, lawyer, ethicist, and technologist, what's a quick 30,000-foot view before we get into what world look, the world looks like without work? So... Sorry, no, that, that, that question's kind of thrown me. So, like, what do you mean in terms of, like, the general outlook on the future of work? Or no, I, that, was a, that was a terrible way for me to word the question. What's the 30,000-foot overview of you and your career? How did you become um, the, the red, blue, red pill, blue pill guy of the 21st century? So, one thing I often say to people is that, you know, as a child, I was very interested in science fiction. I used to watch a lot of science fiction, read a lot of science fiction, and... I effectively tried to find ways of kind of merging my interest in science fiction with my professional and research career. So like I'm an academic, I have a background in law, I teach in a in a law school, but I specialize largely in the ethics of emerging technologies. And I focus on a lot of different technologies. Uh, enhancement technologies was one of my major interests early on, uh, some new developments in kind of neuroscience and brain computer interfaces. But then in the past five, six years, I've focused largely on robotics and AI, like most of the rest of the world, it seems. It seems to be the key topic that people are concerned about. And um, like one thing that's become clear is that my kind of childhood interest in science fiction, that, that, that world that was depicted in science fiction is increasingly becoming a reality. So it's, uh, I think, an exciting time to discuss and think about these issues. Definitely. Which sci-fi book or movie do you see us moving towards and why? Oh, uh, that's a tough one. You know, I would like to say something like a Star Trek type future. And that's something I discuss a lot in the book. And I've used that as an inspiration for a number of, of arguments I've made, particularly the next generation Star Trek, which was sort of what I used to watch when I was younger. In terms of like what, what future we're really heading towards, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if it counts as science fiction, but I think a lot of people would say we might be heading towards something like The the Circle by Dave Eggers, which is this kind of critique of surveillance culture. You can see a lot of um, kind of emerging phenomenon that uh, suggests we're tr- tracking in that direction. Uh, you know, there are a lot of g- dystopias out there that we could realize in the future, you know, type of, like a Gattaca-type reality or... I guess a Blade Runner type reality where you have despoiled the natural world and we kind of live in these decaying cities with our advanced technology and everyone's trying to get off planet. Another possibility that I, d- I discuss in, in the book actually quite a bit as a, a counterfoil towards my optimism that I, I try to defend in the book is uh, the movie WALL-E. So I don't know if you're familiar with WALL-E, but it's this depicts this future. It's the Bezos story. It, it, it depicts this future where we have these kind of advanced robots and humans live on these spaceships, and they've become really obese, and they float around in these electronic chairs, being fed entertainment and fast food, and then uh, they have all these robots doing all the work for them. And I mean, that, that's, again, a, a possible trajectory. It's a bit maybe outlandish and far-fetched and satirical, but there are aspects of robotics and AI that might be pushing us in that direction too. So that's not a single coherent answer, but it seems to me that there's a lot of possible directions in which we should go. And I should say that that's that's one of the main themes of this book I've written, which is that the future is a set of many different possible worlds. And we have to try and figure out how we're going to navigate through the space of possible worlds. And all of those dystopian possibilities, those aren't probabilities. Those are things that the authors see taken to the extremes. 
so we can see what that extreme would look like. In general, we don't live on the extremes. We live somewhere between the left and right of everything, so to speak. So I don't think we necessarily have to worry about those, but I think that they are very valuable in creating the guideposts so we can see where the the pitfalls are, which I know is a big part of the reason you wanted to look into your work is automation, what's going to happen with jobs, what's going to happen with society. I want to get your thoughts. Yeah, no, I, like I, I very much agree with you on the, the notion that a lot of these dystopias are thought experiments where people take like one idea to its logical extreme. And it's unlikely that we will end up at one of those logical extremes. We're going to probably end up in a much more messy and complicated reality that doesn't isn't as clean and simple as these dystopian or, or utopian fictions present us. In terms of the future of work, I mean, I am somebody who thinks that the automation of work is possible and in many cases desirable. But I think I need to be a little bit careful in terms of how I frame that or present that thesis, because I don't think that the future will be one in which nobody works. I, you know, I think there will be some people who work or are paid for a living in the future. I just think that an increasing percentage of the adult population won't be able to find gainful employment because of advances in automation. Now, it's already the case that we have a fairly significant percentage of the adult population that don't work and don't look for work. You know, there's a, a metric that's used in many advanced countries, something called the labor force participation rate, which is a measure of the adult working population, people who are at work or looking for work relative to the total adult population. And, and that figure is around 60 to 70 percent in most advanced industrial economies. So you're, you're talking about between 30 and 40 percent of adults don't work at the moment. So when really, that's that's so Ireland, where I live at the moment, the figure is sixty three percent. So you got about thirty seven percent of the adult population uh, don't don't work. That's that's the working age population as well. And the U.S. I think the U.S. is uh, roughly the same. So like most economies are somewhere between sixty and seventy percent. I don't um, have the figure for the U.S. off the top of my head, but it's uh, easily locatable um, online. Very interesting. I would have guessed that would be much higher. Yeah. So like my my vision of the future of unemployment through automation is something where you have a fairly significant decrease in that figure of labor force participation. I mean, you know, 15% would be fairly radical if you only had 15% of the adult population working. Uh, the economist Tyler Cowen, who some people might know his work, he, he suggested that in a book he wrote back in uh, 2013, that that would be the future. But, you know, 30 to 40%, that would still be a very different world from the one in which we currently live. You'd have a, a majority of the adult population then no longer at work or looking for work. And we would have to kind of rethink how we organize our society in that if we face that kind of reality. And you've thought about this a bit. This is one of the critiques that I have of a lot of big picture thinkers is they either present the problem and present doom and gloom, or they present the solution and present really none of the solution, just that we'll get there. What does it look like as we start getting into higher and higher levels of automation? A, will more jobs come? And B, what does the actual dynamics of the utopian dystopian world that we create look like? Yeah, well, I mean, if I take the first of those questions in terms of, you know, will, will new jobs come? So like most economists, the mainstream view in e economics is that more jobs will come because this has been the pattern that we've followed in the past. So it, it's been true for a couple of hundred years, maybe even longer, if you really want to think about it this way, that machines have replaced human labor. This became very prevalent in the industrial uh, revolution, the early days of the industrial revolution. You had machines replacing skilled human laborers, and there was social uprising about it. The so-called Luddites, the Luddite movement in, in the UK was a famous historical illustration of this. But there are other cases as well, dotted throughout the past 200 years. And even though those workers were displaced by machines in the past, it seems to be the case that we've always found new jobs for humans to migrate into. So no, people are no longer being employed as agricultural laborers, but they found jobs in the service economy or something like that. You know, So new jobs have come on stream to soak up the displaced workers. And economists tend to think that that's what's going to happen again. So machines are getting good at performing certain kinds of tasks in the workplace, particularly routine tasks in predictable environments, because that's what robotics and AI are good at doing. They're good at performing routine tasks in predictable environments. But there are other kinds of tasks that they're maybe less good at doing, and humans will be able to complement machines in performing those tasks. So we're just going to find new jobs for people to migrate into. Now, and that's the, th that's the theory from some economists, just to clarify. Yeah, that's the kind of 
that, that's what I would suspect that's the mainstream econ- economics view. I mean, I discuss one particular economist in, in the book who's a defender of this view, a guy called David Order, who's from MIT, who's presented this claim. He talks about the so-called complementarity thesis, which is that humans can migrate to tasks that are complementary to machines, and those would be the new kinds of work. And now I'm a little bit skeptical about this claim that we're going to find new forms of work, and there are a few reasons for this. I mean, I think I discussed four reasons in the book, but one is that there have been some studies done of the effects of robotization on the labor force. So another pair of economists from MIT, uh, Darren Asimoglu and Paul Restrepo, did this study about the impact of robotization on the American labor workforce from 1990 until about uh, 2010, I think it was. And they found that for every one robot that was employed, so to speak, or used in a workplace, it tended to displace 6.2 human workers. Okay, so there wasn't a net gain through robotization. And this is during an era when robotization was relatively low. Okay, it's because I would more- I would push I would push back on that so just to play devil's advocate. There was for the specific jobs, but then the creation and that's not to say I support the economic the economist view that more jobs will be created because I don't think that will be the case. But there would also be other jobs created in terms of robot servicing, in terms of transportation, et cetera, for those. So I'm guessing the stats that those 6.2 stats is just, we've got a guy in the factory line, now we have a robot, and he gets rid of 6.2 people. But it doesn't look into the other implications. So it eliminates certain jobs. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. But so one of the things that uh, Asimoglu and Restrepo do in, in their report and their paper on this is that they look at um, those other kind of subsidiary jobs or complementary jobs that might have come on stream for other people. And they what they do is they present a range of figures because they can't get an exact estimate. But they do reckon that even if you take into consideration other jobs that might have been created or might complement these robots, it's still a, a net loss of jobs, maybe between three and six, depending on where you look. Um, so that kind of preliminary evidence suggests that even during an era when there was relatively little robotization in the workplace, Uh, relative to what we expect in the future, there was a net loss of jobs. Now, I wouldn't necessarily place too much weight on that. Things could be different in the future. But there are a couple of other reasons that I think we might struggle to find new jobs. One is just that there's kind of an accelerating pace of change around technology. This seems to have been true, particularly in the last 20 years. Obviously, there's a longer discussion about accelerating change in technology in the kind of digital technology and Moore's Law. Um, but I, I think this creates a kind of pacing problem, because if you can create new machines that can do tasks better than humans at a faster rate than you can create new humans to perform those tasks, then this creates kind of a, a positive feedback loop, or depending on how you want to phrase it, a negative feedback loop, whereby uh, it's difficult for humans to keep up pace with the pace of change of robots. So um, even though if you could find new jobs for humans, it might take too long to train those humans to perform those jobs um, at a at before kind of a new technology comes along that replaces uh, or is better than humans at performing those jobs. And so, especially because uh, I was going to say, especially because two minds are better than one. So if we're creating a robot, we can take the world's smartest people, put that into algorithms, into a robot. And an individual human can't really compete with a neural network of the world's smartest. Yeah, no, and so that's another feature of, of the, the, the way in which technology, the gains of machine labor get distributed, is that they can get distributed very quickly. So, you know, you can replicate the machines very quickly and you can uh, spread them out into all the different sectors of the economy or the parts of the globe very quickly in a way that you can't easily move human beings. Okay, and like this is actually a problem, which is that, you know, one of the effects of a kind of anti-immigration policy is that it, it prevents human labor from migrating to places where jobs are available for humans. And that's, a, I think, a struggle that we're going to see more of in the next 20 years is, you know, can we redistribute human labor in a way that keeps pace with technology? And so it's not just a question of the technology improving very quickly. There's also these kind of social and political forces that prevent humans from finding new jobs easily. There's also like, like just one final reason for skepticism about the possibility of finding new jobs, which is that sometimes the assumption is that there's always going to be these complementary tasks that humans can perform alongside machines. But sometimes machines create a working environment that is actually more beneficial to other machines. And so I think about this a lot, actually, in relation to something like the finance industry, all right, where you basically have algorithms are really good at executing trading strategies, okay, because they can respond very fast to information that's coming in. But this actually has as a net effect of making it slightly more difficult for human regulators and human traders to kind of 
keep on top of all the activity that's taking place in the market. So they have to rely a lot on machine assistance. But I, I think in the future, it's it's more and more likely that you know the role for a human in financial trading will be reduced to a very very small role. Maybe there'll be some role for traders to kind of schmooze with clients and attract people to buy into a certain platform or a trading strategy. But beyond that, I think there could be a, a significant reduction in human labor because it's very difficult for humans to actually work alongside machines at the same pace, speed, the same kind of dynamism uh, as the machines can. I would definitely agree with you on all of that. I want to add a devil's advocate point to the finance industry, though. So we uh, we had Sean Gurley on the program, and he brought up something called Wiener's Law, which is basically automation works great until the occasional times where everything goes to shit. It's more or less the simplification of it, because as you have algorithms and systems running, there will be certain use cases or certain cases that cause everything to crash. So for instance, with finance, because the trades happen so fast, you have two effects. A, companies aren't really able to optimize for long-term performance as much because they have to focus on day-to-day. And B, you have the creation of mega index funds where you're going up very quickly or going up very well, and then suddenly everything crashes and it's a run on the bank times a billion. So do you think potentially in the future to combat these types of automation losses, humanity will or humanity should consider creating restrictions? So for instance, with trading, right now we have trading by the microsecond and there's a lot of flaws with that and almost all trading is algorithmic. We could change that to be only trading once a day only trading once a week, a month, a quarter. A quarter would be great because then you could actually incentivize companies for long-term growth and sustainability. But something like that where being a machine would no longer have uh, advantage, so to speak, because the aspect of speed that machines will always be able to win at isn't necessarily a winning characteristic in the long term. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a fair point. So, I mean, there's maybe two things that are worth kind of following up on there. Like one is, is it the case that kind of the widespread diffusion of these kinds of technologies will make certain systems more vulnerable to crashes? So everything's fine until it, it isn't fine, basically. And I, I think that's probably true. And like we, we could talk about this more generally, if you like, but I, th- I think this is a concern we should have about AI and robotics is that they are making the world more vulnerable to kind of you know, seriously catastrophic civilization ending potentially problems. Okay. And not for reasons of super intelligence uh, that you know, people like Nick Bostrom or Elon Musk are worried about, but even for like dumb intelligence, if you like, or d- like an algorithm that's really smart at, at executing a certain strategy could have a catastrophic impact in the right kind of ecosystem. Um, the other point about you know finance, yes. So at the moment we we have no speed limit in a sense or on the market, and so human uh, machines have a distinct comparative advantage over humans in in the kinds of markets that we've created. We could, if we wanted, regulate and restrict that and slow down markets. And there have been proposals to do this in recent times. And so it's possible that we will consider placing these kinds of restrictions to make markets slower and ultimately more human friendly. And that could be a good thing, could be a positive thing. There are people who push back against that idea. I think it you know, won't be kind of positive for the economy that there is some value to this high-speed trading. But I think... They're pretty much all the people that are doing the trading, though. You know, we balance the books. We perform an important function, generally. Yeah, but this is an interesting point as well, because um, Stuart Russell, who's you know well-known AI scientist, he makes this point in a recent book he's published called Human Compatible... Uh, sorry, yeah, Human Compatible is the name of the book, uh, which is about this you know, problem of superintelligence AI, but he makes an interesting point that, you know, corporations are the kind of the original artificial intelligence and they they execute on a single uh, algorithm of, you know, profitability, particularly short-term profitability in very destructive ways and are ways that are difficult for humans to actually manage and control. So if you want to change the market, slow it down, make it more human-friendly, so to speak, you'll have lots of people who have vested interests in the market and the way it currently operates and who can pay lots of lobbyists to prevent politicians from executing the changes that are needed. So there might be political difficulties of changing the market in a way that's more human friendly. Oh, definitely. It would be it would be economic war. Yeah. But and the thing I would say just at one point I would make is that the finance is just one example of this this problem. And, you know, another example I discuss in the book is like medicine and medical diagnostics in particular, and that it's very difficult for a doctor, a single human doctor to keep up to date with all the latest medical evidence. But it's going to be relatively easy for machine to do that. 
Now, you know, machines that have been used in medical diagnostics to date, we have some impressive results, let's say in radiology or radiography, and maybe less impressive results in other kinds of diagnostics. But I think we're probably going to have more use of AI in medical diagnostics in, in the future. And I think that's an area where you don't want to impose kind of artificial speed limit or constraint on the capacity to find information that might be relevant to making a diagnostic. So that's a case where you probably don't want to make the working environment more human friendly because the ultimate goal is protecting patients' health and well-being. And so anything that does that is beneficial and anything that hinders that or slows it down is kind of problematic in the long run. How do we deal with the falling asleep at the wheel of the Tesla problem where we think that the driverless, we think the AI is very, very good. And we put our faith in something that we're really not able to see isn't as good as we thought it was. Well, I mean, so I think self-driving cars are an interesting case. And I've been thinking about this a lot recently in that I, I'm not convinced that we'll ever have something that we call fully autonomous vehicles. And that's not because I think the technology won't be there. I think that's because there are very strong legal and social incentives to uh, tell people that they don't have a fully autonomous vehicle. So it's in Tesla's legal interest to say that we have this autopilot system. It's very advanced and sophisticated, and uh, you can trust it in many cases. But actually, you should also be fully aware at all times that you're driving and be ready to step in and prevent an accident should it occur. And the, the car may hand over control to you in the event of a potential accident. And so that's useful from Tesla's perspective because it allows them to kind of distribute responsibility back onto the human user at the last minute, so to speak. And I, I think that many kind of car manufacturers are going to see the similar logic where they, they, they don't want to, even if they have the technology for a fully autonomous vehicle, they will want to put in place some mechanism or system that allows them to distribute responsibility back onto the human user of the vehicle at, at critical moments in order to avoid liability. Now, I mean, the net effect of that could be that we have, we have a system that is almost as good as fully autonomous, and humans are willing to trust it in many cases. So you'll, you'll still have people sitting in the backseat of their car watching movies in, uh, while the Tesla autopilot does its work. And they will then just take the risk of the machine not working in a certain case, and they will take the potential liability if things don't work out, because they'll assume that the chances of an accident are, are so low that it's, you know, it's just not worth them worrying about it on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, I don't know if that was a clear, a coherent thought, but that's what I've been thinking recently. It is. I would say I kind of disagree with the premise because I don't think vehicle ownership will be individual. I think it will be pooled. So having insurance on a pool or having all of the Uber riders who are riding have to have the $5 a month car insurance for a crash so that if one person gets in a crash, suddenly you have $100 million times $5. You've got plenty of money to pay out, etc. I think that that would be a much easier way to do it because when you do have fully autonomous that's acknowledged fully autonomous, you're able to take a lot of the challenges out, especially if you remove the driver from the equation. You're able to get rid of a lot of the scenarios that would lead to increased crashes increased problems, increased insurance claims, etc. Yeah, I so insurance like the way in which we have have an insurance system for driverless vehicles is going to be key to to managing this problem. At the moment, uh, I can't speak to the US, but I, I'm pretty sure it's the same as the situation where where I live, which is that the insurance system works on the assumption of individual driver responsibility for a vehicle, so it's kind of parasitic on that system. So your insurance company will only pay out if they assume that the other driver isn't responsible for the accident, for example. Okay, so there's still a lot of concern about who is responsible for an individual accident. There's another you know, country in the world which has a, a pure social insurance system for vehicle accidents. It's New Zealand, right, where there isn't a question of like who's liable or who's, who's responsible for the accident. There's a social insurance fund that pays out money for people who are victims of accidents. And so if we had a system that's more like that, more like a, a pure social insurance fund for accidents resulting from driverless vehicles, we could avoid the problem that I mentioned about the, the incentive to distribute liability onto the, the driver. Um, but it's, again, it's a question of can we have such a system and will there be sufficient political motivation to create such a system? I think it's more a question of what business model ultimately wins out. But it could also be the insurance model dictates the business model that gets created. That'll be that'll be an interesting one. But more what I went from more what I meant from the question is we have the prison algorithm who's deciding who gets bail and who doesn't, and this guy's black, so he gets three years longer. But if we didn't really look at the data, we would have no idea. Or we have the autonomous chef, which is cooking all kinds of things in our kitchen, 
until suddenly we find out that one thing it's switching the experiment uh the ingredient names and putting cyanide instead of chloride or whatever into just basically how do we deal with a black box intelligence that will assume is more intelligent than us because it appears to be because it can win it go it can win it chess it can drive our cars it can make food do the laundry all of these things how do we judge that going forward from a technological pacing perspective when it will seem like we are inferior well before we actually are. Right. I mean, so I, I don't know if I have a, a good answer to that. I, I, my sense is that kind of got to go back to the, the wiener problem or, or that you mentioned earlier, which is this, that people will trust it until it becomes, until it becomes obvious that it affects their interests in some ways or until it's revealed or exposed that it creates certain problems. So, I mean, if you, if you take the criminal justice system and the use of algorithms to score people for risks uh, of recidivism, let's say, I think you know, people are, who work in the criminal justice system are, in many cases, inclined to trust those systems, not because they think they're necessarily better or more accurate than they are, but because they have a lot of pressures on them and it's easier to use this system. So like in, in any context where it just seems easier, more efficient, they can do your job faster, it doesn't seem to be causing you any grief or nobody's questioning the decisions that are made using this algorithm, you'll, you're going to use it because it's just more convenient for you to do your job. If there's some expose and it's revealed that it's biased in some way, which is what has happened in relation to these algorithms, then you might take a step back and say, oh, I'm not going to trust this system. I'm going to ignore it from now on, or I'm going to game it in some way or play around with it in some way so that it gets a result that I see as more desirable. So yeah, my, my sense is that we trust these systems if they are convenient for us, given what our interests, whatever they might be at the time. And that doesn't necessarily track or correlate with how intelligent the system is or how competent the system is. So we'll trust our driverless cars until our next door neighbor dies in the crash. And then we'll realize we should have had our hands paying attention, more or less. I mean, that's a kind of a grim way of putting it. But I think that's kind of true. Like we'll as long as it seems good enough for all our purposes, we'll trust it. And then if something goes wrong, suddenly we'll stop trusting it. Or if there's some major scandal or accident in relation to driverless vehicles, then we'll stop trusting. How do you think about robots, robot taxation, UBI? So look, if there's widespread technological unemployment, if we see the labor force participation rate go down, then I think we face two fundamental problems. One is a loss of income for many people, and income is essential to surviving in the modern economy. And the other one is kind of a loss of maybe a sense of purpose or meaning for many people since they attach a lot of their self-worth to jobs. So you're going to have to do something to, if you if you want to maintain the economy in roughly the shape or form that it currently exists, where people pay for goods and services when they need them, then you're going to have to redistribute income from people who own machines, who get the benefits of machine labor, to people who are displaced by machines. Now, the precise mechanism that you use to redistribute income to achieve that end is maybe open for some debate. UBI seems to me like an attractive option in, in many cases. I think there are independent moral and political reasons to favor a UBI that aren't necessarily connected with automation. You know, it's um, it's oftentimes a much simpler system of welfare payment. It arguably creates more kind of independence amongst people. They're less it's less um, undignified in the way that it questions people about whether they're entitled to welfare payments if you have this unconditional basic income guarantee. So there are many, I think, advantages to UBI. But I think there are other options that we could try. One thing I would say about a, a robot tax, it, depending on the form it, it takes, it could have the effect of disincentivizing people from using robots in the workplace. So that that might be a, considered a bad thing if we think that robots should be used in the workplace because it increases productivity, it makes things safer and more efficient. So we'd, we'd have to be careful about you know how we calibrate the precise level of a robot tax to avoid some of those disincentivizing effects. I think that would be the point of the robot tax in and of itself would be to create that mechanism whereby you are either disincentivizing it enough to hire a worker or forcing economic change in a UBI or some other type system where people were able to survive without having that job. So it's kind of creating the conditions that force that problem to be to come to light so to speak because if you don't solve that problem and you automate away the jobs then we end up in san francisco times a thousand where we have billionaires living next to people dying on the streets from yeah no i think you're right yeah. I, think, I think that's exactly right i think um we have to do something to force a solution to the 
distribution problem. Yeah, people don't change unless the next door neighbor crashes in the driverless car accident. We don't change on our own. Yeah, and again, so it is the same point, but actually to make it in another way, you know, the one thing that people say as a criticism of this notion that there's going to be widespread technological unemployment is that, well, you know, the, the capitalist system, the capitalist market wouldn't work if there was widespread technological unemployment because it's based on demand. You know, people have to be able to pay for goods and services. And if they are losing their jobs and they don't have any income, they're not going to be able to pay for these goods and services. So the whole system will collapse. So there's kind of this inbuilt corrective mechanism for capitalism that it's, it's, it's going to stop it from automating that many jobs. And you know, the only thing I would say in response to that is that might be true at some extreme point, but do we actually know where that level is? You know, like, could we sustain a population of a thousand super wealthy billionaires and a couple of billion really destitute and poor people uh, for a long period of time? It's possible that we could. So we don't know where the breaking point is for capitalism, so to speak. The breaking point, I think, is the level of exponential force that can be compelled by a certain subsection. So for instance, when you look at government, government has three purposes, really. Goods and services, um, money, and weapons. So protection. But protection also gets flipped around in a situation where you have people that don't like their government and vice versa. It becomes a gun to your head holding you within that government. I think you could see a similar dynamic play out if we're not careful where you have people pushing for revolution. And the only question is, how big of a private army can Bezos manage to hire to protect the compound? And we don't want to go in that direction. But I think a lot of very successful people seem to be planning as if that is the only route, which is very dangerous for all of us. No, I agree. And actually, look to history as well, like as to for lessons here, there, there were times in our past where a small ruling elite were able to control masses of peasant farmers and workers for a long period of time. And there were revolts now and again, but you know, people were willing to kind of live in a certain equilibrium for, for long periods of time. And I don't know if we tolerate that nowadays. I don't think we I don't know if we tolerate a reversal in our fortunes back to that kind of reality, even though it wouldn't be the exact same. But history suggests that it's possible for a super wealthy elite to control the mechanisms of government, of law, and of the economy for long periods of time to the disadvantage of large numbers of people. Especially with surveillance, we have China's social credit system and that we've seen the NSA snowed in revelations right now more so than ever. Yeah, I heard a stat one time and it was looking at how many how many uh, intelligence officers, how many people they could surveil. So a ratio of KGB to the number of people that the KGB were monitoring. And we're just millions of times beyond whatever the KGB or the Stasi were doing in terms of NSA and other organizations being able to stay on top of and manage populations. Yeah, you're reminding me of a movie that was probably released in the 2006 called The Lives of Others. It's a German movie, which Mm -hmm. is about the Stasi and the surveillance culture up until the end of the fall of the Berlin Wall. And if you look at that, if you look at the kinds of technology they're using where they have, you know, a guy you know, in the house next door to the... It's co- laughable. Yeah, it's laughable in comparison to what we have. This. Yeah, it's it's um it's very crazy. I know you've thought a bit, I know you've thought a lot about the philosophy of tech and how we need to make decisions going forward. I want to I get your thoughts on how we should be handling some of these things. Yeah, so... You know, what can philosophy bring to bear on discussions of technology? I think what philosophy is good at, and at least the kind of philosophy that I undertake, is it's good at setting our priorities in a way, or figuring out you know, what are the kinds of things that we value, that we think are important, what are the potential threats of technology, and what are the potential opportunities embedded in technology. And we can subject those to a, a rigorous evaluation. I don't think philosophy is good for predicting the future. I don't think it's good for necessarily understanding the impacts of technology on people on a day-to-day basis. I think you need to rely to some extent on, or to a large extent on, psychology and other kinds of social sciences to study impacts. But in terms of figuring out what kinds of things we value, what we ought to prioritize, and using the results of other sciences to conduct this rigorous evaluation of the, the possible futures we might face, that's what I think technology is good at doing. And that's one of the things that I, I try to do 
in my work. So, I mean, I focus very particularly in, in the book I've just written, the impacts of automated technologies on human flourishing and meaning, looking in particular at that second problem that I mentioned a moment ago. So we've got the lo- loss of income as being one major problem of widespread technological unemployment. Loss of meaning, loss of purpose is, I think, the other problem that we need to consider and focus on. Because that's one of the leading meaning and connectedness are the two leading drivers of addiction and depression. If you don't have those, you don't have much. Yeah. If, if you're just, if you feel like you're cast adrift from society, that you have no purpose in society, you can't make a meaningful contribution, you can't collaborate with other people, and uh, you're going to try and find other outlets. And if you can't find them, you know, if there's, if you're kind of aimless in life, it's highly likely that you'll turn to drugs, suicide as an alternative to what you've lost. And then there's the technological addiction, social media, and soon virtual reality. I think those will become more and more appealing as we have people having less meaning and easier access to overstimulation. Are you worried about that? Yeah. So I have a chapter in my book, which I talk about giving techno-pessimism its due, because broadly speaking, my book is optimistic about the future, but I don't want to be Pollyannish or naive in the way I think about it. I want to give a full and fair hearing and understanding of, of the social problems. So I think you know the kinds of addiction that we have with social media I frame this or I think about this in terms of a crisis of attention. I'm not the only one who's thought about this. Other people have have talked about this crisis of attention. But I think it's worth reflecting on the impacts of this crisis and, and what it means. So what I mean by attention is, you know, what what is front and center in your conscious mind at any given moment in time? You know, what are you focused on right now? Are you, are you focusing on this conversation that we're having? Or are you busy checking your email or, you know, looking at your social media feed. I can tell because I'm looking directly at you right now that you're not doing any of those things. You're kind of fully in, um, ensconced in this conversation. You're fully focused on, on this conversation. But other times, people, I'm pretty sure I have conversations with them on the phone when they are not fully present with me in, in the conversation. So, you know, th- th- what is in the spotlight of your consciousness is what you're paying attention to at any given moment in time. And what you pay attention to at any given moment in time, to a large extent, dictates how happy or satisfied you are with your life. You know, there's this idea in psychology of the so-called flow state. I don't know if you've heard about this or come across this idea where, you know, when you're absorbed in a certain kind of task that is mentally challenging, that's pushing you to your limits, you get fully absorbed in it, your attention is completely sucked up in performing that task. And it seems to be the case that flow states are the states of kind of most satisfaction or subjective satisfaction that people have. It's the thing that they they most cherish in life and that they most want. And I think technology, particularly at, you know, digital technologies and automated technologies, are having a negative impact on our attention in two ways. One is that they're all competing for our attention. So there's this, this kind of mass of services and content that is competing for our attention. And they're getting increasingly good at hooking our attention in addictive ways. But it's still the case that we're, we have a very fragmented attention span. We're constantly distracted and overstimulated and moving around in diff- about in different directions at any given moment in time. And that's a negative thing. So it means that we can't get fully absorbed in anything anymore. And I, this is a, an experience that seems to be widespread. And anybody I discuss this issue with reports that, oh, yeah, no, I feel like I'm being pulled in 100 different directions at any moment in time. And that it's very hard for me to find some dedicated, focused time where I can concentrate on something that is important and meaningful to me. So that's kind of one negative impact of automated technologies on the capacity for attention. And there's another negative impact as well, which is that what are the kinds of things that they're trying to get us to pay attention to? Okay. And oftentimes, they're not things that are positive to our emotional well-being. It's, it's largely in social media and the media more generally, I think, thrives nowadays on a kind of outrage culture of provoking the most extreme emotional reaction from people because they see that as a good strategy for captivating attention. But if you're always focusing on things that kind of dial up your emotions to their highest level, your anger, your outrage, that can't be positive for your long-term well-being and flourishing. And so I think we have those twin problems of the impact of technology on capacity for attention. They're fragmenting and eroding our capacity to pay attention. And the things that are absorbing our attention are things that are not positive for our emotional well-being. I would say they're eroding our ability for attention, but not just attention, but life. Because 
the best ways to think about what life is, is living in the moment because you really don't have yesterday and you really don't have tomorrow. And that's that that would be like a Buddhist meditation type type sense. But if you look at the brains of these guys, they're living longer, they're happier. And the what's the key? They're living in the moment and they're accepting that. And I think that's the antithesis of a lot of these technological trends. And I don't know how to balance that. Yeah, no, if that's the kind of more philosophical point here, which is that the the realist thing in our lives is the present moment and the capacity to pay attention to the present moment in a non-judgmental way, this feature of mindfulness practice. This is a notion that you find not just in Buddhism, but in many other wisdom traditions and, and wisdom philosophies as being so the secret of happiness is what you're paying attention to at any given moment in time and uh, how you get absorbed in what you're doing. And it's it's when we get distracted by the past or by the future that we tend to become more irritable or concerned or anxious and so forth. And yeah, I think technology is impacting and eroding that capacity. I mean, the irony, I guess, is that people are now trying to use technology to encourage and motivate increased mindfulness through different kinds of mindfulness apps and services, uh, which play, I think, a dangerous game insofar as I'm sure some of them do work for some people. And I've used some in the past myself to relatively beneficial ends, but they also are part of this attention economy, these apps and services where they're trying to capture your attention through various alerts and notifications and gamification of their systems. And so there's this kind of double-edged sword to, I think, a lot of those technological attempts to encourage mindfulness. Well, the question is, do we have leaders and people at the top that have to be the, what's the question? Do you need, like the Marcus Aurelius um, question, do you need a ethical dictator to create the best possible situations for people because people aren't able to create those situations for themselves? And it's a strange problem to think about. But if you were to give people those technologies and almost take away the option to do the wrong thing, while they may be living better are they living? Well, I mean, now you get into, I think, you know, a really thorny issue in, in political philosophy and, and moral philosophy. I think, you know, myself, I'm with, and this maybe shows that I'm out of date in many ways, but I'm kind of with John Stuart Mill on this question. You know, the, the argument that he makes in his famous essay on liberty is that we need to do whatever we can to empower the individual to make the most of their own lives. And that means that we should avoid, to a large extent, the the temptation to excessive paternalism of, of like kind of being the ethical dictator that forces somebody to do the right thing. And in, in our eyes, we should focus on empowering people's capacities to kind of live the most fulfilling life that they can. Uh, you know, how that gets worked out in detail is a challenge. But I think in terms of the general perspective that I take to these matters is that I, I want to avoid the dictatorship of the wise as much as possible. See, but if you take that to the other extreme, you have the dictatorship of libertarianism and Rand Paul, uh, and Rand, sorry, Pope and Paul as well. Yeah, no, so I like it, 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 it's a compromise whereby you have to fi- have to provide sufficient kind of social supports and education for people that they can they're empowered to make the most of their own lives. You don't just leave them adrift and without any safety net or social safety net. So that would be not, you know, not the philosophy that I would espouse. It would be kind of a hardcore form of anarcho-capitalism or something like that. That would be quite distant from my own personal uh, political outlook. And, I, and you know, not just to make it purely about my personal political outlook, but I, I just think it's something that is not conducive to long-term human well-being. Yeah, I think... I think you see the anarcho-capitalism um, mindset a lot more in, in Silicon Valley and tech elites. They seem to have this belief that the markets solve all problems. And I think we found that markets can't solve certain collective action problems. No, and I, I think, you know, a number of those companies are confronting that reality now. I guess Facebook may be one of the most obvious ones. They're, in a sense, they're kind of looking for some kind of regulatory intervention to tell them what they ought to do about kinds of political ads or free speech because it it's too difficult for them to manage the problem themselves the problem of public markets and um the fact that facebook have have become a de facto public space uh, they've become a, a place where the public goes to discuss matters and political matters so they have kind of additional responsibilities and significance within our democracies as a result of this. And they're kind of struggling with that feature that this with great power comes great responsibility. And they don't know how to really discharge that responsibility. And I I suspect, you know, Mark Zuckerberg doesn't want 
somebody like Elizabeth Warren to come in and break up Facebook and remove all his wealth. But I think he would probably like somebody to tell him, the legislator to tell him what he should do about political ads. We're all weak enough that the easiest way to lose weight is just not to bring junk food into the house in the first place. When you don't have the choice, it's much, much easier. When you have a choice, suddenly it becomes a challenge every day. Yeah. Growing up, and probably still today, my favorite Christmas movie of all time, Home Alone. I loved seeing the family leave for the holidays and the kid go through the chaos, having the home get robbed, the whole nine yards. It was hilarious. Do you know you're five times less likely to have your home robbed than you are to have damage from water leakage? That's why I'm excited to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Flow, the company that's giving you peace of mind for the holidays and every day. Flow can detect up to a drop a minute. You know that little dude, 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 which drives you nuts. And for a limited time, you can save $150 off the installation of a Flow device by going to disruptors.fm slash flow, that's F-L-O, and using discount code disrupt15. Save money, save water, save your home. It's the number one way to save money on your water bill, expensive home insurance and damage claims, and have that peace of mind knowing that that awesome new carpet you got, it isn't going to get ruined by complete soakage. We've all been there. Something goes wrong. We lived in New York and had a sump pump. Things happen. So for a limited time, $150 off your installation, disruptors.fm slash flow. That's F-L-O and use coupon code DISRUPT15, all caps, at checkout to save 150 bucks. And now let's get on with the program. What are the low hanging fruit that you see today if you had to spitball some ideas? Uh, I mean, so an idea that I have, and that I think there's maybe a handful of people who've been thinking about this, but I don't think there's enough attention paid to it is how how does technology change or shape our values? And, And the things that we care about the things that are fundamentally important to us. There's the assumption is that these things are fixed, the th- you know, things that we believe are right and wrong and that are conducive to a good human life are relatively fixed over time. But I tend to think that that is less true than it, it might seem to be, that actually what we value and what we care about tends to change a lot with technology and social development. And so if you could think in a meaningful way about the way in which our values are going to change in the future in an insightful way, I think you could make a big impact uh, and make a big difference. And I mean, to make this more concrete, people living nowadays, people of our generation, are likely, are highly likely to have you know, very positive attitudes towards homosexuals or, and the idea of, of gay marriage. Whereas people of our parents' generation or older than that were likely to view that as maybe an, a moral sin or crime or abomination or something that should be prohibited legally. And so we've undergone this huge shift in our values in half a century. So like, what's the next major shift in our values? Is it going to be that the way in which we treat, let's say, animals will seem abhorrent to people in 50 years' time? Is it the case that the way in which we treat the new emerging intelligences, artificial intelligence, is going to seem abhorrent to people? I think these are the kinds of questions that I am interested in and the things that I think not enough people are focused on, which is how will our values radically shift as a result of technological change? And technological possibility. I agree with clean meat coming on board. Once we have lab-grown meat, how can you justify killing an animal to eat it if you can eat the same thing without killing the animal? How does that not suddenly become, oh my God, what are we doing? I think sci-fi is a great place to look for this. That's part of the reason uh, I'm actually working on some sci-fi books now. I think personally, we should replace a lot of the books that we read in English literature classes with sci-fi because then at least they're getting something out of it besides grammar. I'm working on a book now. um, Scientists create a way to extend life. The only caveat, it takes a life to give a life. And I think even something like that where we were using genetic engineering to extend one person's life or using CRISPR to improve the odds or improve the abilities of our kids, suddenly all of these things that go from, that seems really wrong, go to, well, you know what, if everyone else is doing that, we, it's the shoes problem. You go to the store and you don't need any shoes, but oh my goodness, they're on a discount and they match so great with my jeans. And wouldn't Debbie tell me, or wouldn't Mike say, or wouldn't this be great for basketball? We find the excuses to do the thing we really want to do anyways. And I think that that's what technology does for us, is it gives us the excuses to be and to act how we would like to act otherwise, but society doesn't let us. Oh, yeah, I think that's that's right. I think, so it, it gives, so, I mean, a classical illustration of this is uh, Plato in The Republic has this thought experiment of the Ring of Gyges, which is a, an invisibility ring, and he imagines what would people do if they were truly invisible all the time, and that they'd, they'd be free to act in a perfectly self-interested way because there'd be no repercussions to their actions. 
And so sometimes like, what technology enables and makes possible is almost like a digital form of the Ring of Gaijis, a kind of digital form of, of uh, invisibility. Some people have spoken about this as a problem in the future, but um, I think sometimes it's an opportunity because it enables us to do good things that we might not otherwise do. You know? No, it's not a problem. It's a double-edged sword. It's opportunities and problems depending on how people decide to use it. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. And that's always the case. It's, all of these things have... Exactly. Threat and opportunity is embedded in. Two last questions. What's one thing that I should have asked you about that I didn't? So, I mean, I guess that y- y- you should have asked me about what my vision for a, a post-work future is in, in the book. Uh, and I mean, I've answered this already, but uh, I, I talk a lot in the book about the notion of living a virtual life and a virtual utopia. And I think that um, more and more of our lives in the future are going to be lived in something that we can call a virtual form, and that this is a, a good thing. And one of the ways in which I argue that it's a good thing is that it's kind of part and parcel of the long-term trajectory of human civilization, which is that humans for a long time have been trying to create barriers between themselves and the natural world. Uh, we, we create these technologically constructed ecologies, technologically constructed niches that we live in. We, do, we try to avoid living in the kind of harsh natural environment. I'm talking to you at the moment in a nice, you know, centrally heated house that protects me from the elements. And I think we, we try and do that more and more. We try to protect ourselves from reality. And that, so we're, we're becoming more virtual in our lives in the long term and that this is ultimately a good thing. Does that look like being on social media all the time or does that look like living in a matrix? No, I, I mean, it, I guess it would be closer to living in the matrix, but it's a, a case where you're not deceived into living in the matrix. So I mean, the, the, within the matrix, the problem is that you're, in, you're kind of enslaved and you don't know that you're living in the matrix. Whereas my projected virtual future is that everyone knows they're living in this virtual world, but they're all perfectly happy to do so. I think it's dangerous because you don't have life without death and you don't have happiness without sadness. Well, yeah, so I'm, I'm not um, eliminating any kind of... I don't think you can eliminate the dark side from life completely. So it's really a question of how you balance it. And it actually, like one thing as well you could have asked about, which would be interesting, is the conception of... I talk a lot in the book about utopias and utopian societies, but commonly that conjures up for people the image of a a society which there's a very rigid plan that everybody has to follow. There's a blueprint that some elite group of people want to impose on the population, and that's the utopia. And things usually go wrong when they try to impose that blueprint on, on the rest of civilization. But that's definitely not what I imagine or envisage with the utopia. I think a utopia is a type of society in which is dynamic and open-ended. I mean, and this is actually one area where, and people might hate me for this, I, I, I tend to agree with Jeff Bezos. So this is maybe my guilty secret is that he talks, when he talks about space exploration, space travel, he, he defends it on the grounds that it maintains a dynamic and open future for humanity. And I tend to agree with him on that. I think it's a good idea to try and maintain a dynamic and open future for humanity where we're constantly expanding into new horizons. I would say the only flaw that you have with your definition of utopia is it also defines today. And I think that's the, that's the little moral question mark that people never realize with t- utopia dystopia and reality is they're all just definitions of the same thing fair enough yeah one last question before you tell people where to find you about the book and all the good stuff and that is if you wanted to leave people with one thing a quote a call to action it can be anything what would it be and why so i start my book with a quote from a a friend of mine a guy called kaj sotala he's a finnish an artificial intelligence researcher and he has a poem which is called the the autumn of humanity it's kind of a, a scary poem in some ways and it's just a, it's very short. I guess it's like koan-esque, or not koan-esque, what am I thinking of? Haiku-esque. It's a, he says, it is the autumn of humanity, and we are moments between raindrops. So that sounds like a scary prospect, the notion that humanity is going obsolete in the future or obsolescing. But I argue in the book, and this is a quote from my book, and this is the one I would leave people with, is that far from being a cause for despair, this future of human obsolescence is actually an opportunity for optimism, because harnessed in the right way, the technology that hastens our obsolescence can open us up to new utopian possibilities and enable heightened forms of human flourishing. So that's my quote. I would I would completely agree if we're willing to move towards a more socialist future. If we're not, I think we might be in for some problems. Yeah, so I think yeah, again to go back to our earlier theme, some 
significant change in how we distribute the benefits of our economy is essential to make this this future a, a flourishing one. Yeah, the trickle-down economy ended once we got exponential technology. Where is the best place for people to find you and learn more about you in the book? Well, look, the two places, I suppose, Twitter, uh, I'm fairly active on Twitter, at John Danaher. And uh, I'm the first John Danaher on Twitter, but not the only John Danaher on Twitter. Uh, Don't confuse me with the Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor who's more famous than I am. So that's one place. And then the other place is my blog, which has an awkward title, which is Philosophical Disquisitions. Disquisition being an, an old word for a lengthy essay. And that contains pretty much everything I do. And of course, the title, he's a lawyer, an ethicist, and a philosopher. So therein lies lies the problem of the title and the creativity that comes with it. Thanks for coming on today, John. We'll put links and everything in the show notes, guys, disruptors.fm. And thanks for tuning in. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, John. Good luck and keep up the good work, I suppose. Cheers, guys. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoy this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us, and if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message, and have a great day. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.